The reading comes from Luke chapter 15 and starts at verse 1 to 24. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around Hiram. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country and squandered, and squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. When he came to his census, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms round him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the word of God. 
Let's pray that God would speak to us from his word this morning. Will you join me in praying? Father God, we thank you for the scriptures and thank you for this particular story. And we pray, Lord, that you would send again your Holy Spirit upon us to give us understanding, but more than that, that this story might speak to our hearts and change our lives. I pray for your help that I might speak faithfully truth as you impart it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of all the stories that Jesus tells, none is better known, is it, than the story that we know as the prodigal son. And my suspicion is, my hunch would be that you, like me, are very, very familiar with this story. Possibly even over-familiar with it. And there's a danger that runs with that territory. It's a bit like when you do the same drive regularly, let's say driving home, and I'm sure there are some days when you just drive home on autopilot and you can't actually remember the last four turnings you made or what went on because you do it so often and yet you navigate that road safely. Whereas uh, there's often a lot to be seen on a journey. There was a correspondence in the Times a little while ago in which someone observed the number of people who were on their mobile phone in a journey that they had made. And this prompted someone else to write the following letter. Dear sir, Guy observed seven car drivers using mobile phones on a journey from Grantham to Greenwich. I calculate that his journey would have taken about two hours on that stretch between Grantham and the end of the M11, traveling at 70 MPH. And in that time, he might also have observed that he was being constantly overtaken by cars, vans, and foreign lorry drivers. He would also have observed at least three women putting on makeup, four men shaving, five people looking at maps while driving, two people eating soup from a container nestled between their legs, and if he was stationary on the M11, at least three people using a hard shoulder to get in front of the queue. In my experience, what he wouldn't have observed is a single police patrol car. Yours faithfully, Michael, in brackets, petrol tanker driver. Which is just to say, there's a lot to be seen on a journey if our eyes are open. And in this particular story that Jesus tells, it's a drama in three episodes. And we're not going to look at it all in one week. No, we're going to spread it out, actually, over three weeks. This is the longest parable that Jesus tells. And I think it's also the most significant. And once we've considered it all at the end of three weeks, we will have seen and we will discover, I feel sure, that it's a story about you and about me. In fact, we're wrapped up in this story and we appear in this story. Now, we know the story as the prodigal son, which is unfortunate because it's not actually a story about one son. That's a misnomer, really. It's a story about a family. And there are three central players in it, two sons and a father. And understanding this story, one has to look very carefully at the very opening verses of this chapter, Luke 
chapter 15, because it holds the key to why Jesus even tells this story. So let me read you the opening verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now put yourself into Jesus's shoes or sandals or whatever, and imagine yourself standing to talk and teach. And as you look around you at who you're going to talk to, you've got an incredibly diverse crowd. And two groups stand out, Luke tells us, and they would chalk and cheese from one another. There were the Pharisees and teachers of the law on the one side, as it were, and there were the tax collectors and sinners. Now, for us today, it's incredibly challenging to get our heads around what we're being told here because the stereotypes we might have in our head is not accurate. We tend to talk down about the Pharisees. We have a phrase, the Pharis being Pharisaical, and that's not really a compliment. But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were people you looked up to. They were, as they saw it and as they were perceived, they were the guardians for godliness. Now, I was trying to think, who, who would we consider equivalent today? Very, very difficult. Uh, people in the House of Bishops, in the House of Lords, within our local context, the PCC, the, that's the governing body of the church. And what about those on the other side, the outcast side? The tax collectors and sinners is the phrase that Luke uses. What uh, would we equate them with? I'm not sure. Human traffickers, perhaps? Um, child molesters, drug barons, and they're in the crowd as well. So how is Jesus going to teach into that setting? Well, the answer is he's going to tell them a story. But in fact, he's not going to tell them this one story. He's going to tell them story upon story. He's going to tell them three parables. And this, I think, of itself is worth of note because it's the only time in Scripture that Jesus teaches the same thing three times consecutively like waves coming in upon the seashore. And each one's getting bigger and bigger until he absolutely grabs our attention with the story of the two sons. And there's a lot in common between the three stories. And that's, again, intentional. Good teachers do this. You'll have noticed they repeat themselves. And why do they repeat themselves? And not because they haven't got anything else to say, but because they want to emphasize a point. They want to make sure the point gets home. And another reason I think that they often repeat themselves, and Jesus repeats himself, is when a message is hard to hear. So he says it more than once. Now, the themes that are in these three parables, the story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and the lost sons, the themes are there for us to see. Lost and found, that's one theme. A search party is another theme. You know, it's, it's a kind of variation on we're going on a bear hunt, we're, we're going on a sheep hunt, we're going on a coin hunt, we're going on a sun search. And then there's the theme of repentance and there's joy in each of these stories. There's lots of rejoicing. 
But now we're going to focus then on episode one of the story of the younger son. And it's a tale of a wastrel. The behavior of the young son might actually, for us, in our modern readership, be a very average story, the beginning of it. And we might read it and think, yeah, well, this plays out in real life. A child goes to its parents and says, I've had it with being at home. It's time I spread my wings. It's time I got out of your hair. I saw wider than the confines of home life. I need to travel a bit. Haven't you seen my bucket list? You don't want me to be narrow and blinkered. Give me some money and let's get out of here. And, and lots of parents have heard that speech from their children, and lots of children have done it, and it's called a gap year. And, and we just think, well, it comes with the territories. Hey, what, what's so bad about that? Thank goodness they can go and get a life. Now, if that's what's going through your mind as this story begins, then you're missing the point that Jesus deliberately makes. Because Jesus very deliberately paints this son as despicable. How do I know that? Well, because wrapped up in the request, give me my share of the estate, is a sentiment that goes like this. I can't wait for you to die. Because in those days, just like actually in our days, you generally you wait for someone to die before you claim your legacy. But this son is so bold, he just says, look, uh, let's not waste time or beat around the bush. I'll have my legacy cash up front right now, thank you. And that, that kind of talk would never go down well, then or now. And then also the way Jesus loads this story, he, he's so precise with what he says. He, he just wants to get away the son. He's got no game plan, except let's put a distance between me and home. He sets off for a distant country. And then a key word, he squanders his wealth in wild living. And, and anyone with an ounce of wisdom, even just this far into the story, could tell you this guy is cruising for a bruising. And that is exactly how it turned out. Two things happen. One we could foresee and one you couldn't. He ran out of money. His cash ran out. But secondly, what no one could have foreseen, it's sort of a bit like a COVID crisis, it coincided with an economic downturn in the country. Severe famine fell over that whole country. And you put those two things together and very quickly he begins to be in need. And this is turning into the gap year from hell. And so far from what he hoped does he fall that he has to hire himself out. And not just hire himself out into some kind of low down kind of a job, but in a repugnant job. And that's the point of him working amongst pigs because you will remember that to a Jewish audience, pigs were unclean. You couldn't farm pigs, you couldn't eat pigs, and you definitely wouldn't want to work amongst pigs. And yet here is this younger son, not just working with pigs, but up to his neck in pig swill. And that's all he's got to live off. Now this definitely would have had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law indignant. And then the most desperate line of the first part of the story, 
No one gave him anything at all. He was wasted. His life had fallen apart and he was brought to complete rack and ruin. And then, as you know, he has this light bulb moment. And the key verse around which the first part of a story pivots is this, when he came to his senses, or as another translation put it, when he recovered his right mind. And he makes this startling self-discovery. You know what? Back home, even my father's hard hands have food to spare. And he rehearses in his head a homeward scenario, a speech not of regret, but of genuine repentance. What he's going to say in his mind is not, I'm so sorry, things haven't worked out as I thought they would. It's not my fault, I was just plain unlucky. Who could have foreseen there'd be a once in a thousand year famine after all? Now that's not his speech. His speech goes like this, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your servants. And what happened when he was a long way off? Well, you know, he found the father looking for him. And there's a suggestion that the father's been scanning the horizon every single day in the hope that the child would come back. And the father, we're told, is filled with compassion. And that's a very strong word. He, he, he ached on the inside. And he runs to his son. And in their culture, just like in our culture, to be seen running was um, infradig, really. It's very bad for morale, yours and everyone else, if you start running around the place. But the father doesn't mind what he looks like. He runs out to meet his son, and he rehabilitates him, doesn't he? Bring a best robe, a new ring, new sandals, kill the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine who was dead is alive. He was lost and he's found. And they begin to celebrate. So what's this telling us? Well, I think the first thing is this. It was a surprise ending. When I was working in Cambridge, one of the things that was popular amongst students at one time was to go and work as a teacher of English in China. And uh, they would be uh, seconded to a school, and there were very strong rules about what they were allowed to do, what they were allowed to say, and what they were not allowed to say. And this particular uh, student, who was a very strong Christian, went out to teach them English, and uh, he had this absolutely uh, ingenious idea. He wasn't allowed to um, evangelize as such. But what he did was he told them he was going to tell them half the story from the Bible. And he told them the very first part of the story of the prodigal son. But he stopped the story with the son on the homeward journey, and then he sent them homework and said, please complete the story. And they handed in their homework. And then he would ask them, would you like to actually hear how the story ends as Jesus told it? And he said in all the months that he taught, not a single person, not a, a single student, completed their story the way Jesus completes the story. And, and that brings home you know, something that we largely forget, that it was enormously unexpected 
that the father would be so gracious, so kind, so loving to such a wastrel son. And I think one of the things we're just meant to accept and lap up and love is however other people look at you, there's a place called home where you're loved. And that's in the father's house. And I'm sure that this was what the outcasts heard that day. And God willing, some of the Pharisees heard as well. God can use brokenness and failure to draw us close to him. It's not everybody's story, but thank God it's some people's story. And it's true. Some people do discover God's love because events conspire against them and they come to their senses. Some people do discover and connect with God's love because life spins out of control and they reach a point where they cry out to God for help. That is, again, thank God, quite a common story. I remember hearing of uh, a lady um, in, down in the southwest of England who was told by her doctor that she had incurable cancer. She wasn't in the least bit a religious person, but she saw in her imagination that life was now going completely out of control. She didn't know what to do about her children, she was a single mom. She didn't know what to do about the future of financial provision. She, she just was in blind panic. And she stumbled into a nearby church because the door was open. And she just sat in a seat, weeping, 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 as any of us might have done in those circumstances. And as things would turn up, uh, she was taken to the vicar's house, and he gave her a cup of tea, and he just talked to her about the love of God. And in that precise moment, she decided that was exactly what she needed to connect with. She asked Jesus to be Lord of her life. And she was a changed person. She, she lived a good 15 years after that and became a bold ambassador for Jesus. Jesus stepped in amongst a mess. And that is the life story of many a person, that one misadventure followed by another, a kind of... Um, 10 out of 10 for difficulty testimony. You know, quite often we like in churches to hear people's life story. And the more hair-raising, the better. It, it, it's like an Olympic diving competition. You, you get 10 out of 10 for difficulty. But actually, I noticed when I was praying for my children, I prayed they'd have the most boring testimony ever. I didn't want to have to live through that. I wanted their testimony to be, I never knew a time when God wasn't real to me. But God has all sorts of ways of reeling us in. And this story of the prodigal son is, you're never so far away, he can't reel you in. But it's important we don't just categorize this character as being so different from us. Because it's equally true, there are plenty of people who outwardly look as if they've got life completely altogether. Outwardly looks like one big success story but equally inside are empty, cracking up, desperate. And this can happen to anyone. You could be earning a fortune, you could be commanding a respect of so many, but quietly unsettled. And there are just as many testimonies that go along those sort of lines. I, I think of uh, someone I met 
who told me when I asked her her story, she said, well, my husband was senior partner of a large London law firm. We used to spend our life uh, traveling the world. And we always stayed in the lap of luxury hotels. And uh, I don't know why it happened, she said, but one particular evening, there I was enjoying myself in the bar, she said, actually, and I was in the lap of luxury. I was surrounded by the best of everything that money could buy. And I knew in one part of my brain I ought to be exceedingly happy and fulfilled. And I knew absolutely in another part of my brain that I was quietly desperate and crying. And I realized at that moment I needed more, more than this. And one way or another, God's love reeled her in. She made the journey back to the Father's house. I don't know what your story is, but the impact of the first part of this story is this. Anyone and everyone who wants to can make the journey towards God's love. Some time ago, Bernard Levin wrote this, countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire and yet lead lives of quiet and sometimes noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact there's a hole inside them and however much food and drink they pour into it, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it, it still aches. The pivot point was he came to his senses. And a point for us is this. If a father can love and welcome back the younger son, wastrel that he was, penniless, with pigswill on his apparel, and nothing to present for himself except for a heartfelt apology, well, he can welcome us too. And he can rejoice over us too. And he can satisfy us too. But this isn't the only way to look at the youngest son, interestingly enough. There is another perspective. And some people present him not as an adventurer who found God's love when he was far away from home, but he might represent a rather different group, actually. People who have already made a discovery about God, people who already have experienced the love of God, people who have dwelt in the Father's house, but who at some stage of their lives have either drifted from God's company or determined to get away from God's company and head off into the distant country. Now, I don't know if this was always a deliberate thing, but it definitely happens, and I think it happens sometimes just by drifting. Because the truth is, and you know this, you will have known people who at one point in their lives were really on-fire Christians up for it. They would be evangelists. They would speak for Jesus Christ. They would be conscientious believers. They would be role models that uh, we'd be proud of. And then somehow you meet them sometime later and things have slipped a bit. And they've gone from being on fire to just sort of maintaining their faith by the skin of their fingertips. And their faith is faltering and their fruit is scarce. And Jesus himself said this could so easily happen when we pursue other things more than we pursue the presence of God. And if you mustn't mix metaphors, you probably shouldn't mix parables either, but in the parable of the sower, Jesus did say that would happen. The desire for other things would creep up. And it's not really a question that I feel very comfortable asking us, but we need to ask it. 
Have we ever been closer to God than we are now? Because if the answer to that is yes, then you know what I'm talking about and how this parable has relevance. If you find yourself in a more distant country than you once used to dwell in, then this story is a wake-up call. Then again, this story is Jesus saying, come back, come back. I need you on my side as a kingdom builder. And I actually think, privately really, that lockdown and what it's done for our worship makes it odds on that there will be many people who formerly were on fire with Christ who are going to be in maintenance mode when lockdown's over. And the reason for this is because it's tipped many of us in, into being really just observers on a screen. And it, it's made church going for us a, a consumer activity. I, for five months, I had five months off convalescing from COVID. And um, we as a family really, really enjoyed tapping into all sorts of churches uh, all around the world. And um, I had the pleasure of joining a number of churches and leaving a number of churches. And when you're a vicar, you don't get that pleasure. Well, I, I got it vicariously from a distance. But I couldn't help noticing that I had become a consumer, not a contributor, because it's all I could be. And frankly, it didn't make any difference to the church in California that I was watching their sermons, wasn't really building their congregation up. I wasn't doing anything whatsoever by way of service in return. Church had become a consumer activity. And frankly, that's what we're waiting to see when lockdown is over. Will that be happening all around the globe, all around the country? Because coming together to worship involves so much more than just being fed. It, it in, involves service, doesn't it? It involves putting ourselves out. It involves praying for what we're doing corporately as a whole body of Christ here. It involves egging each other on to see the kingdom come. It involves making a difference. And I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if many people are sort of being lulled to a distant place from God. Well, it doesn't have to happen. This story, again, to us, could be God knocking at the door of our heart, saying, come back. Come back. Come and live close under my wing. And there's a great danger, let me just say this, there's a great danger in going on a wander away from God and just presuming that, well, when I feel like it, I can get back into his company. Because scripture teaches us and real life teaches us that's very often not how it works. The farther away from the narrow road we walk, the harder it is to turn back. Until sometimes you, you just can't even hear the voice of God anymore and you can't even see the road back. But this story, this story tells us that if it took losing everything to rediscover God's company, it would be worth it. If it took losing all you had to bring you to your senses so that your life story became I rediscovered joy in the presence of the Lord, you wouldn't regret it. So, and we're only just beginning our look at this long story, 
even today, we could ask ourselves, am I ready to come home? And if I came home, what would I say to the Father? And surely the essential stages look like this. And with this, I come to an end. Number one, know this, the Father is out looking for us. We're told that in more than one place in Scripture, that the Father seeks worshippers. It is like this Father in this story, scanning the horizon. Secondly, we need to come to our senses. Each of us can only do this for ourselves. We have to make that decision, I'm going back to the Father. Thirdly, we have to take responsibility for our life choices. It's not regret that the Son speaks about. It's repentance. I've changed my mind, is what he says. What I did was foolish. It was my fault. I own it, but I'm coming back. And he throws himself, doesn't he, on the mercy of God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. But we'll look at this more closely in the following weeks. Notice this, because it's a source of enormous comfort. The father throws his arms around the son before the son's opened his mouth. I love that. The son still stinks to high heaven of pig swill. The son still looks a moving wreck. The son hasn't done anything to commend himself whatever. And yet the father runs out to him and embraces him. Before he can say a thing, which is as much as to say, you don't have to clean your life up before you come to the Father for his love. And we shouldn't expect people to clean their life up first either. The love of God overwhelms them. And that's what happened. And he gets new identity, new robes, new dignity, new sandals, a new family, that's in the signet ring, and a celebration and a party. Isn't that wonderful? Can it stir a memory in you that God did that over you when you returned to him? And I just want us to remember, this is all of our journeys, if we want it to be, many times in our life. Have you found your place in this story yet? This is only week one, and over the next couple of weeks, there'll be more opportunities to appear. But I fully expect that some of us have already recognized ourselves. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus hit upon this story which illustrates to us his incredible love and the plans and hope that you've invested in each of us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't be too proud to return to you. And we pray that you'd soften our hearts, that we might celebrate your love together and glory in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.